Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. Good morning. My name is Ty Davis, and I'm one of the pastors here at TCC. And I'm so excited to continue in our series on 1 Timothy together. I hope you've enjoyed the messages so far, as our team has been working so hard to bring you a clear picture of the scriptures week in and week out. And you need to know that the teaching team and the leadership here at Tulare Community Church places an enormous value on the centrality of the Word of God, meaning that we believe that the Bible is the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. And that means that there's a lot of careful preparation, attention to relevance, and spirit-led creativity that goes into each series from our teaching team. We want our congregation to be equipped and growing in its ability to study and apply biblical truths in ways that lead to a scripturally integrated life. Because the truth found in the Word of God promotes a godly life. All right, I'm excited to jump into today's text, but before we get there, I want to give you some background on what's happening here in 1 Timothy. We have the Apostle Paul, who's a central figure in the New Testament, a man who was redeemed by God and went on to play an integral part in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, starting churches, and pushing Jesus' command forward to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything he commanded. And one of the ways Paul did this was through identifying, building up, and sending out leaders. And Timothy was one of those leaders. Timothy was from Lystra, which is modern-day Turkey, and Lystra was a city found between Antioch and Derbe. It was a center of education and enlightenment, a city with a mixed population consisting of the local high-ranking Roman soldiers, uh, some Greeks and Jews and native Lyconians. And we know from the scripture that Paul visited this place at least four times teaching and healing people. And while it was in Lystra that Paul met Timothy, it was also a place where Paul would experience persecution. Listen to what it says in Acts 14, 8 through 10. While they were at Lystra, Paul and Barnabas came upon a man with crippled feet. He had been that way from birth, and so he had never walked. He was sitting and listening as Paul preached. Looking straight at him, Paul realized he had faith to be healed. So Paul called to him in a loud voice, Stand up! And the man jumped to his feet and started walking. Now unfortunately, the people who witnessed this miracle didn't really get it. They thought Paul was the Greek god Hermes and Barnabas was Zeus. And they started to give them gifts and things. And Paul's like, hold up, wait a minute, just this is wrong. And at the worst possible moment, more naysayers arrive on the scene from the last town Paul visited, and they quickly turn the crowd against them. And listen to this from Acts 14, 19. Then some Jews arrived from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowds to their side. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of town thinking he was dead. I mean, this guy Paul, he dealt with this kind of stuff a lot. He had to be hard-headed. Get it? The guy survived stoning. Anyways, all joking aside, there are actually Bible commentators who think that there's a good chance that young Timothy actually witnessed both the miracle and the brutal stoning. And if that's true, it makes the next part of this story cause you to endear the character in the heart of Timothy all the more. Because on Paul's second mission back to Lystra, Paul asked him to join his ministry, and Timothy was probably only 15 or 16 at this time. I mean, could you imagine yourself at 15 or 16 and the man that you listened to teach about Jesus Christ in your hometown? The man that you watched heal a person with a birth defect that you've known your whole life, the man who you watched get stoned within an inch of losing his life. This man asked you to follow him in the Great Commission. What do you say? How do you respond? Well, this young man responded by accepting the call, and he began his mentorship under Paul that day. And it was a mentorship ordained and blessed by God. And we know that because Paul gives Timothy a description that no one else gets. Paul says this in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 2, 19 through 21. 
But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Paul says he and Timothy had a kindred spirit, that they were like-minded. And so as we read through our text in 1 Timothy chapter 6 today, keep these details in the back of your mind. Because this isn't just some supervisor giving his employee a list of things to do. This is a mentor who loves Timothy like a son. A mentor who sees himself in this young man. Think about the training that Timothy had already undergone as he was reading this letter from Paul. Even a seasoned, well-trained Christian needed to be reminded of how to conduct himself in life and in the church. So there's something for all of us here, no matter where we're at on our journey with Christ, all right? Now, I think we're ready for today's passage. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 10, Paul says to Timothy, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of the Lord Jesus Christ, and with a doctrine conforming to the godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a sick craving for controversial questions and disputes about words from which come envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicion, and constant friction between people of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment, for we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, then this we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction." For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, if you've been with us this past few weeks and you've been listening to the messages and maybe following along with the reading plan, then you know that Paul already discussed false teachers and false doctrine with Timothy in this letter. In his first chapter, Paul urged Timothy to stop those who were teaching a different gospel, to end the pointless disputes, and instead focus on the wholesome truths found in the sound doctrine of the law of Moses and the teachings of Christ. But here he goes on again. So either he's hit that point in his letter where he's kind of rambling, or something came to mind that sparked him to focus more intently on the effects of false teachings on the body of believers. And so Paul says, if anyone abdicates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of the Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. And the verb used for does not agree is literally come over to, as in fall in line with. And this has a much stronger meaning than using the word consent to or agree with. Anyone who's just listening to a teaching could simply agree with the teaching. But someone who is bought into the teaching joins the teacher. They follow the teacher. They not only agree, but they express their agreement with their actions and their promotion of it. For example, I agree that a steady diet of fast food is bad for me. I agree that exercise is important to my health. I agree that the spiritual habits of reading my Bible, praying, and fasting are important to my relationships with God. And it's one thing to agree with these things, but it's a whole other thing to express that agreement with my actions. It's one thing to accept them and do them reluctantly, pouting through that salad when you wanted the french fries, but it's a whole other thing to express my acceptance of this better way with enthusiasm. And that's what Paul's getting at here. He's saying, don't just hear the true words of Jesus Christ. Live them out. Speak them out wherever you go. Don't just meet Jesus at the well. Drink from the living water. And it's this type of lifestyle, one that falls in line with the pure and perfect, unimpaired, uninfected, healthy truths that Jesus preached and lived out in his life and in his death to demonstrate our inner attitude of complete devotion to God. And that's what godliness is. That's what Paul has done with his life and what he has trained and reminded Timothy to do with his. And now through the reading of this text, what you and I are encouraged to do also. 
We are to take to heart the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, the pure and perfect truth that came directly from the Creator God, the words exemplified in ministry of His Son. And this doctrine, not the false doctrine contaminating the church at Ephesus, is the epitome of the inner attitude of complete devotion to God, which is again godliness. So here we are, some 30 years after the ministry of Christ, Jesus himself in false doctrine has entered the church. And this proves that man has a propensity for sin, an innate desire to turn away from the light and into the darkness. And it's not usually a sudden decision, but rather a slow drift. And it happens when we slowly distance ourselves from the word of God, from the body of Christ, and the spiritual habits of the Christian faith. And that's when our devotion to God fades. Paul says the person who doesn't see that, it's advocating for a different doctrine, is conceited and understands nothing. And what Paul is beginning to flesh out for Timothy here are the characteristics of a false teacher or a person who follows false doctrine. And Paul goes on to say that a person like this has a sick craving for the controversial questions and disputes about words from which come envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicion, and constant friction between people of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Now, when a person rejects sound doctrine or healthy teaching, sickness ensues. Paul, like a well-trained doctor, diagnoses this group's sickness by listing out the symptoms. Do these so-called teachers like to make mountains out of molehills? Do they love a good controversy? Paul says these disputes only lead to bitter outcomes, envy, either from one party refusing to acknowledge the other, stand in the puffed-up dispute, or one party getting the best of the other, strife, when said party got the worst of the dispute, but is also unwilling to admit defeat, only leading to more and more bitterness, abusive language, and evil suspicions. I hate that person. Let me tell you something that you wouldn't believe about so-and-so. And Paul says these symptoms are contagious. It creates cons- constant friction between people of the same depraved mind and who are dep- deprived of the truth. They trust no one. They burn on the inside, never getting over the last argument. Forgiveness is completely out of the question. The whole idea of two people rubbing each other the wrong way, this is it. There are indicators of a depraved mind and a, de- and a deprivation of the truth. And I'm going to be the first to admit that as I read through this passage and this list of characteristics, I caught myself stopping at each of these and thinking to myself, I have an appetite for those disputes sometimes. I've been arrogant, been envious, I've slandered others that I've disagreed with. Does that make me false teacher buying into a false doctrine? I don't think so. Does that mean in those moments that I've disregarded the wholesome teachings that promote a godly life? Yeah, I think so. And as I reflected on it this week, I was reminded of the times when these characteristics flared up in my life, and I realized that it was common really early on in my ministry. I remember being so arrogant, so ready to dispute a senior pastor and a senior leadership when I was serving as an 18, 19, 20-year-old in my home church, But it took a mentor in my life to point these unhealthy things out. And I'll never forget the shame that I felt when I apologized to that senior pastor for the way that I behaved and the things I said and the thoughts that I had towards him. And I'll also never forget the grace and the forgiveness that was given in return. It was a lesson I needed. And I think it's also fitting that Paul reminds young Timothy of not only what to be on guard against, but what not to do himself. And Paul ends this section with a final warning about these false teachers. He says, They suppose that godliness is a means of gain. And these false teachers put on a show of godliness. They turn religion into a show or a mask that they could put on and take off when needed. And working in student ministry over the years, I think I've heard this more than anything else when talking to non-believing students about Jesus or their peers who call themselves Christians. And they say, those Christians on campus just put on a show in front of the teachers and their parents. But they're actually living the same life as me, a non-believer. I'd just rather be real and who I am than be a hypocrite. 
And this doesn't make the faith attractive. And that's why Paul told Timothy in chapter 4, verse 16, keep a close watch on how you live and on your teaching. Stay true to what is right for your, the sake of your own salvation and of those who hear you. But these false teachers were doing more than just putting on a show to make themselves look better than they really were. They were charging hefty prices for their teaching. And as Pastor Shane mentioned last week, Paul just made it clear in the previous chapter that those who primarily serve in the church as teachers and leaders should be paid for their work because it allows them to focus more attention on the needs of the church family. However, this applies to those who serve in humility, sincerity, and with a mind to honor God. Bringing about a false doctrine to itchy ears, living a double life, teaching on matters that bring division and really don't draw anyone closer to God— all spread disease. And Paul has been talking about this, and he's saying they don't deserve that double portion. They don't deserve to be paid. These false teachers were profiting both financially and emotionally. They serve for the sake of the gain that comes when others recognize or admire them as this spiritual leader. And we have the responsibility to stop it when we see this taking place. Listen to what Second John 1, 10 through 11 has to say about it. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, the true gospel, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Paul says in Titus 1.11 about stopping false teachers, they must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And in Romans 16.17-18, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. Let's continue with our passage. Paul's going to shift gears here. Listen to what he says in verses 6 through 8. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. So Paul now begins the topic of true riches, true wealth, and true treasure. And he makes a huge point. He says, these false teachers have missed the mark. If they only knew that there actually is great gain in living a life that is devoted to God with contentment with what they have. And some translations use soul sufficiency in the place of contentment, meaning that with a life devoted to God, there is benefit in every way. And remember what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.8. Physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and in the life to come. And Jesus said in Luke 12, 31 and 32, Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, when Jesus says, seek his kingdom, he's not talking about a place. He's talking about God's rulership, his authority in your life. That is, devoting your life to making God your Lord, putting yourself under him. It's a call to godliness. And in doing so, it's living in faith that our God is good and his promises are everlasting. And Paul says in Romans 8.28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I want to be clear here, and I'm not saying that by believing in Christ and following him that you're going to get rich, that you're going to, set, you're going to get that big promotion, that you're uh, going to get everything that you've ever wanted. But be aware of those preachers who teach this type of prosperity gospel, this name it and claim it gospel. I am saying that our souls can be sufficient in and through Christ. With true devotion to God and in contentment, we have the ultimate treasure in Jesus Christ. This brings with it peace, joy, and the assurance of salvation and the removal of any need to store up treasures here that we think would bring joy. None of these earthly treasures can satisfy the soul. Paul said, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But I'm, if I'm going to be honest with you, reading this is one thing. Knowing it 
and, and knowing it's the truth is one thing, but living it out is a whole different story. I've been preaching since I was 17 or 18 years old. Not well, but being as faithful to my call as I could be. And I've recognized that the weeks that I preach, the text that I'm dealing with always brings about the most challenge in my life. Now, I've known what I've pre- I was going to preach on uh, for almost two months now, and I've read and reread this passage and the total book of 1 Timothy over and over and over again. And when you know it, these past two months, I've had an itch for a truck like you wouldn't believe. I've tried to justify it in my own head to anyone who would listen to me and to my wife, and that's just a lost cause. But it has more to do with, than, with just a new truck. I've struggled with being truly content for two months, and I feel like God's been checking my heart on these things, whether it's my truck or my house or my job or the clothes I wear. He's pointing out areas where I've not been content, and I've had to work through them and center myself back on the pursuit of godliness in order to feel the contentment that, the only, that only the Holy Spirit can provide. A new truck may bring contentment for a moment, but then it can turn to regret when you're strapped with a payment and you find yourself just wanting that next new shiny thing in your life. And I'm not saying having things is bad. Scripture isn't telling us either that we should be happy and just settle in life the moment that we got a roof over our head and a shirt on our backs. We're not meant to just coast through life that way. And being a Christian doesn't mean that you have to be poor either, just like it doesn't mean that if you're rich, you're a bad Christian. Again, it's about, the des- it's about desiring the material riches as if they could satisfy your soul that's condemned, which is what Paul's getting to in verse 9 and 10. He says, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and many foolish, harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and per- pierced themselves with many griefs. This verse is often misquoted by people. It's often said that money is the root of all evil, which is why some have this idea that Christians that are wealthy aren't doing things right. But that's not what the text says here. It says that the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Again, Paul is emphasizing that it's the desire for riches that is dangerous, not the riches themselves. Abraham, David, and Solomon were all insanely rich dudes, but in all reality, it wasn't what was in their bank accounts that made them rich. It was what was in their hearts. They had the heart like the psalmist in Psalm 62.10, which says, If riches increase... Do not set your heart on them. Their hearts were set on the Lord and not on earthly treasures that would cause them to drift away. And Paul's warning Timothy uh, in that same time, encouraging him to practice what he is going to preach to the believers in Ephesus. Because Ephesus was a very wealthy area, and there would would have been plenty of people in Timothy's congregation with resources. It'd be easy for young Timothy to take advantage of his authority in the situation, just like it'd be easy for those in the church to distract themselves with the pursuit of money. But Paul knew the only way to satisfy that pursuit is through Jesus Christ, that he is the ultimate treasure in the universe. And we can chase all the money in the world, but at the end of the day, we're always going to want more, more, more. And for what? We heard it here earlier. You arrived on this planet with nothing. We can't take it with us when we go. And it wouldn't do us any good anyways, because the place that we're going uses gold to pave the streets and pearls to make shiny gates. And sure, we could make the claim that we're not chasing the wealth of the world for ourselves, but we're actually trying to change our family tree. That we want to leave our kids and grandkids in better situations than we had. And I want to too. Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. But we have to take that into context. And remember, it's not just any man, but a good man. It's talking about a believer, and it's speaking about more than just a financial inheritance. But yeah, I agree. It's a worthy cause. It's great to leave something for your great-grandchildren as long as you don't waste your life pursuing the financial gain so much that you don't leave a legacy of godly character and wisdom behind as well. And the simple truth that we have to accept here and what we have to be on guard against is this. There is no sin that cannot be committed for the sake of money. Every sinful craving can be linked back to the pursuit of wealth. One craving leads to the next. Think about it. 
The person who craves the riches generally craves the honor, and with honor comes the popularity. And when they have enough of that, they want the power. And with the power, they expect the easy life. And with the easy life comes the satisfaction of the desires of the flesh. And it all comes shooting up from the same toxic root of discontentment and selfishness. And it's important that we notice the progression here in our text today and take this warning seriously. Our scripture today says, first the man desires the wrong thing, material wealth. Soon they fall into temptation and the snares of their cravings. And finally, their own cravings plunge them into ruin and destruction. And Paul has witnessed this firsthand. He says, some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. He has watched people come to new life in Christ, only to drift away from their Savior because they reached out for wealth, thinking that what they had in their hands and in their hearts already wasn't enough. Their lack of contentment and their devotion to God and their desire to see if just enough money, just a little more could make them happy, left them in ruin and destruction. I want to leave you with this last thought from one of the wisest and richest men ever to live on earth. King Solomon said this in Ecclesiastes 4, 4 through 8. Then I observed that most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. But this too is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Fools fold their idle hands, leading them to ruin. And yet better to have one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with hard work and chasing the wind. King Solomon recognized that most people only want more stuff because they're envious of what others have. They're comparing themselves with other people, competing with others that don't know that they're competing in something and you can't even compete in to win. And it's like a fool chasing the wind. You can't do it. Instead, King Solomon says, it's better to have one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with hard working and chasing the wind. Ah, so wise and beautiful. Sounds like something that you get right out of a fortune cookie. But what does it mean? Well, he's saying basically what Paul's saying is we can get caught in the snare of chasing things so much that that when we finally get our two fistful of things and we're working hard and burning the candlestick at both ends that we're still just chasing the wind because it's never enough. If we had four hands, we would want four fistfuls. And just when you think you got it all, all you, you see that there's a new top dog and you see that someone else has more than you and someone else does it better than you. And thanks to social media and the internet, we can compare ourselves with people and envy people that we've never even met before. And if we remain on this path, then there's no doubt we will end up in the same spot Paul warns Timothy about. The discontent and envy, this comparison trap, will have us chasing the wind, running until we run ourselves right into ruin and destruction. Instead, Solomon said, be content with the fistful that you do have and the tranquility or the rest and the peace that comes from not chasing things that you don't need to impress people who you don't know, who don't and won't be impressed with you anyways. Now, Don't be idle. Don't be lazy just skating by in life. This isn't an excuse to live with your parents forever. But be content with what you do have and the tranquility. And you'll see that when we focus on the will that God has for us, when we follow his truths, when we're working on his plan, and when we're trying to live each day with godliness, that we are the best version of ourselves. So in short, to close this message, don't go through life chasing the wind. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.